Now, in the 11th chapter of Mark's gospel, let's look at our text verse. We'll call attention to that. Then we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll look in today's message. Mark chapter 11, look, look with me now at verse number 13. We'll reread that verse. It's, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day. Help us, Father, and deliver us from all of the uh, distractions of the world around us and all the distractions of busyness and even the attacks of the devil that would serve to distract us. We want so much to be able to focus now on the truth of God for today, the occasion, this Palm Sunday. Thank you for giving us uh, such a beautiful, sunshiny day. We certainly saw some of the other in the week just before us. And uh, we thank you now that it lifts our spirits. We can be here and we can enjoy all the different things that will help us to worship today in spirit and in truth. Please, quiet our hearts now. We know that you desire this worship from us. We know that we can't do it if we're elsewhere in our minds. We know that our hearts need to be in tune with you, focused on you, desirous of hearing from you. And I just pray, Father, for every listener here today and for every worker and especially those that are helping with our children. Bless them as they go downstairs. Lord, I don't know what their lesson is for today, but I pray that you would just bless those that have junior church. Just guide them, help them to be able to communicate Bible truth, particularly about Jesus and salvation to these children today. And may it reach hearts. We thank you here recently. We, we heard of three children accepting Jesus Christ in the academy. We thank you so much for the privilege of, of, of ministering to young children and seeing tender hearts and seeing them respond to the gospel and coming to know Christ as Savior. And Father, I pray in the same vein for all that will go on now. If we have any in our midst who knows not Christ as Savior, I pray, Father, that you would just make the Word of God communicative in a very powerful and real sense to that heart. And for each listener today who knows Christ as Savior, help us to find the message that you have for us. Help us to draw near to you. I pray that you will guide me, Father, and uh, take away all of the hindrances and just give me a freedom in proclaiming your word today on behalf of your people and for your glory. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we are no strangers to what I think is very puzzling. We are reminded of it today on Palm Sunday because it's a day that we think about not just the little children, but throngs. Throngs of people, throngs of people who, as we read in the story here, acclaimed Jesus, shouted with joy, were jubilant over the fact that the son of David, this Jesus, riding on a colt, coming into Jerusalem, a clear indication of his messianic claim, they were so glad, they were so jubilant, they welcomed him, they praised God from their hearts, they took garments, strawed them in the way. I hope you noticed that detail, strawed them in the way, garments. You know, clothing is expensive, and clothing was not exactly the easiest thing to come by in the ancient world and had value. So for people to take those garments of theirs and straw them in the way for a donkey to come over was a particular reference to honor they were giving Jesus. And of course, the colt was provided, and Jesus rode in, and we have all of this. And it's puzzling. It's puzzling to us how in the world you can have this going on on Sunday and within five days, you can have the same crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, 
How can this be, beloved? How can such a, an incredible turn of events happen as if to spin on a dime happen so quickly? How does this happen? Well, we can always say people are fickle, and that's true. But there's a whole lot more that's going on here, and I think that really the, the little story that I want to talk about this morning that's kind of a connected to Palm Sunday. My text actually doesn't come from those verses that describe in Mark's account the events of Palm Sunday, but something that happened the next day. This little story that if you have a Bible that sort of divides things maybe into paragraphs or segments, uh, you may have a title over this. It may say something like the cursing of the, vi the fig tree. And we come across this, and I wonder if you can join me with these thoughts for a moment. It, it almost seems strange. We have to almost ask the question, what is going on here in this? There must be some deeper meaning. There must be some deeper significance to this story. I mean, does God see fit just to include what would otherwise appear to be a random detail that Jesus the next morning, hungry, comes to the city. He sees by the roadside. By the way, that detail is, is found in Matthew's account. Only have this in Matthew and Mark in the gospel stories. Now, so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. His disciples are with him. It's early in the morning. He's hungry. And he happens to see from a distance this lone fig tree by the side of the road. He sees leaves on it. He comes to it. He finds no fruit. He pronounces a very strong sentence against this tree that Peter will later call a curse. And we say to ourselves, well, isn't there got to be something more to this? God isn't just telling us about something that seems otherwise kind of random. It must have significance. It must have deeper meaning. And that is very much the case. And I believe that as we explore some of that this morning, I think it will provide us an insight into this great puzzle. How is it that these people could be doing this on what we call Palm Sunday, and then five days later they seem to have turned their backs on Jesus and seem to be rejecting him and calling for his death? It has to do with the fact that in the Old Testament we find in Israel pictured by the fig tree. And so when we come to this phrase in our text, nothing but leaves... Wow, it points to the spiritual condition of the nation. And it points to the fact that there was little more really there than what we might call hollow profession, nothing but leaves. I want to take this in three thoughts this morning and talk to you, first of all, a little bit about the word promise. Not a promise you make, but a promise that the fig tree made. Let's just think about that for a little bit. As I say, clearly more is going on. Clearly there is something deeper to this story, some meaning that we are supposed to get. I notice an interesting detail. I want you to look at the end, if you would, of verse number 14. I tried to sort of call attention to this in the reading, where it says this, right at the very end of the verse, his disciples heard it just sort of seems like maybe a small detail that doesn't mean much. But I think it tips our hands to the fact that even the disciples, when they saw this go on, said, hmm, something's going on, something unusual. And his disciples heard it. And what sort of magnifies this even more is something that we don't necessarily see brought out in the translation here, and that is the fact we have this translated as a simple past, and the disciples heard it. 
The tense is actually the imperfect tense in Greek. If we were going to translate that in a literal sense to bring out the significance of this, it would be like this. And his disciples were hearing this. And you've been in those situations before, right? I mean, maybe envision yourself for a moment in a restaurant or in some other context and, you know, your attention is for the most part focused on your family or friends, people with you in the restaurant. All of a sudden there is some snippet of a conversation over a table or two that for some reason a phrase or some, for some reason maybe the person's a little loud at first, it just catches your attention. And the first thing you know you find yourself listening. So this is the idea of the imperfect tense, that it does tell us that it happened in the past. His disciples were listening, but it portrays the action as ongoing. In other words, the moment they sensed this, the moment they saw Jesus doing this, they recognized something unusual and they made a special point to tune in. They didn't always do that, you know, just like we don't. So that's a significant detail. They made a point to tune in and overhear what the master was saying and what it might mean. Of course, I mentioned in the Old Testament, to try to bring out the significance, if we're trying to get at what the real meaning of this is and why Jesus acted that way on this occasion, well, we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We don't want to be in a situation of just kind of coming up with our own ideas. But in the Old Testament, you find that the vineyard, so vineyard is grapes, but also fig trees, that these two were commonly used as a reference to the nation or a symbol, if you will, of the nation of Israel. Beloved, we are not going to turn to this this morning, but if you take notes, you might write this down because Isaiah chapter 5 is an extremely well-known passage in this respect. The whole chapter really is devoted over to it. When you get to verse number 1, Isaiah says he's going to sing a song, a song of his well-beloved. And we read down concerning his vineyard. And as we read down, finally, we get to verse number 7, and we find out that the vineyard, as we have suspected all along, as we have read this, is a reference to the nation of Israel. So the vineyard was used, but not only the vineyard, but the fig tree. And here's a great verse in this respect. Listen in on this. Hosea chapter 9 and verse number 10. God says this through the prophet. I found Israel like grapes. So the grapes are still there. In the wilderness, I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. So there's the fig tree. But they went to Baal Peor, and they separated themselves unto that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. So we could do more, but hopefully this is enough for us to set the stage and to recognize, yeah, when Jesus was seeing the fig tree and he's thinking of the Old Testament, there's a rich background in which the nation of Israel was portrayed by that symbol or by that figure. And so what we have, thinking about the word promise, what we have here is a very bold, almost ostentatious profession. Something that calls a lot of attention to itself. And why is that true? Well, it's true because the Bible tells us here that it was not the time of figs. And so if we were going to try to tie this to the time frames, well, we know it was Passover. So the month in which the Passover occurred is roughly analogous to our month of April. And so somewhere in the range of mid-April is what we're thinking about when this took place. 
The Bible gives us the detail that the time of figs was not yet. That's exactly correct. Because the time of figs, that is when the fig trees would have the, the fruit on them ready for you to pick and eat. This would be around the time of late May and June. Then we need another detail. Here's a roadside tree. Jesus is coming, coming from Bethany, coming towards Jerusalem. Here's a roadside tree. Seems to kind of be by itself, so it catches his attention. From a distance, just portray this in your own mind for a minute. From a distance, he sees this tree fully leafed. But he can't yet make out whether or not there is more. He only knows this, and this is the other detail that we need to really understand this, that Palestinian fig trees, the fruit is either coincident, that is, at the same time, or after the leaves. Now does this begin to make some sense to you? He sees this from a distance. He sees a tree fully riped, but he's not yet leafed, but he's not yet close enough to actually make out figs. But everything he knows about how it works and everything about really truthfully how it works is if you see the leaves, there's the expectation of fruit because that's how the fig trees were. And so he comes expecting. But when we think about the tree, there is a bold promise because all of these leaves are clearly evident. Thus, Jesus had every right to expect fruit. In fact, I want before we move to our next thought, to just ask you to think about that with me for a moment because there is a spiritual application of this. Jesus hungered, it said. And what did he hunger for? He hungered for fruit. Beloved, I want us to think for a moment about our own lives. And I want us to take for a moment those words and apply them not to the nation of Israel but to us. Herein is my Father glorified, Jesus said, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. And to think about the fact that God in heaven hungers. God in heaven so desires that those of us who know his son and those of us who make profession of knowing Jesus Christ as personal Savior, that we bear fruit for his honor and glory. I want you to just turn and look over for a moment at chapter 12 because I think you'll be able to see how true this really is. If we look at verse number one, so you've only to look either across the page or turn one. And here, in fact, is a parable about a vineyard that'll help us understand why this is so, that God hungers for fruit from his people. It says in verse number one, a certain man planted a vineyard and set an hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husband, what's this say? of the fruit of the vineyard. Well, why is the husbandman interested in the fruit? Well, he's made an investment, has he not? I mean, the Bible describes it in verse number one when you think about an actual vineyard. It says he planted the vineyard, so he has an investment there. Then the Bible says that he put all the elements there that needed to be there for the vineyard to prosper. 
He set an hedge about it to protect it. He digged a place for the wine fat. He built a tower. And then he put people in charge to be certain that it would be taken care of and that it would produce at the proper time. And I think about the fact that, you know, God has such an investment in me. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever think about what God has invested in each of us? I mean, first God made us, each as individuals, each in his own image and likeness, hungering and desiring that we might live for his honor and glory. He sent his son to the cross of Calvary in order that he might redeem us to make that possible. He further invested of touching the heart of someone or more than one who would bring us the gospel message so that in due time we might come to know his son as our personal savior. He invested the wooing and drawing of his Holy Spirit that we might be drawn to Calvary and that our eyes might be open to his truth and that our ears might be receptive to his message. And ultimately he secured our faith in his son for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he has all of that investment in me. And why? Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. I came across a little piece I thought I would read for you that I think maybe helps to get this point across, but does so through poetry, so you may enjoy this. This little piece is entitled, Searching for a Vessel. The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one to choose? Take me, cried the gold one, I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, Master, gold would be the best. Unheeding, the Master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel. I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my contents so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride, and I'll sh I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved. It solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you used me for fruit not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay, empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on a shelf, nor the one who is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, 
nor the one who displays his contents so proud, not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended and cleansed it and filled it that day, spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour into you. And so we see bold profession. But we have another thought to consider because our story isn't over at this point. And that thought is one of disappointment. Because sadly there's nothing there. This is kind of what evokes the response from Jesus because now we see that this bold display of promise, this bold profession is instead empty. Empty profession. And now I think we have that clarity that I was talking about in the very beginning of the message, the seeming puzzle, the seeming incongruity of the acclaim of Palm Sunday and the swift rejection of Friday. I want to say that Obviously, there had to be sincere people in that crowd. Not all of them were the way the ones who got the attention on Friday were. In fact, we heard and saw even in our own service this morning about the little children. And they were there. And I think that Matthew gets to the heart of it when we see in his account that the real problem was the leadership of the nation I'd like to read from Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. I think you'll see what I'm saying about some sincere in the crowd, but the problem. The blind, it says, verse number 14, and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This is from your Palm Sunday situation in the aftermath of this, Jesus going to the temple. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children, here's the children, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have ye never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. Luke tells us he said something else when they were displeased at the acclamation of those who were truly sincere. Jesus said, yeah, and if they were hushed, the stones would immediately cry out. Wouldn't you love to have seen that? But he certainly made his point when he said that to them. I think that what we're seeing here is captured fairly well in that word. And I think we can broaden the application and say and think for ourselves this morning, it's always a disappointment to God when all it is that we have is a form of godliness and there's no power. I'm thinking of where that verse comes from. What I just alluded to is 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. That chapter says this as it begins, this know also. That in the last times, perilous days shall come. You know this? Familiar with that passage? For men shall be lovers of themselves. And it goes on and gives a number of descriptions until it gets to verse number five. And then that's what it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. 
Beloved, I want to say that in this we see a picture of Israel, but I also want to say that in this I think we see a picture of the church. There's a lot of bold, ostentatious promise. There's a lot of profession, and I have to question and have to wonder sometimes how much reality there really is. I don't want you to think I'm talking to you personally as such, as a congregation. I don't want you to think I'm upbraiding you. No, rather right now my thoughts are on something that's a little more obvious than that kind of a thing. I'm thinking of the church. Out there, the church in the world. And I have some questions. You can think about them. But I'm really wondering how it is that the church can have God's power when we've decided that we really don't like what God says about his word, when God says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, when the Bible tells us that The scripture came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But the church comes along and says, well, we don't really want a book that tells us what to do. We don't really want the authority of God's word. So we find the liberty to have other ideas about what this book really represents. And I say to myself, how is it that you're supposed to have the power of God when you're changing what God says about his word? How is it that the church is supposed to have the power of God when we've decided that we really don't like what the Bible has to say about how men and women got here? You know, this is no big mystery. All you do is open this book and you read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and it says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That's how this world got here. And then it goes on to describe how man got here and how woman got here and God made them. But we've decided, no, we don't like that. We've gotten smarter than that in this day in which we live. Science has proven to us that that's a fairy tale, so we feel free in the church just to reject those things. Oh? And then we advertise men that we're the church, and we have answers. Or suppose we come along and we say, well, you know, it's a little old-fashioned that we think of marriage the way the Bible seems to portray it. And so even though in the beginning as God created and made clear what his pattern was, he created one man and one woman and he drew them together in the bonds of marriage and he said, this is what it is. And then in the New Testament, it picks that up and says, this is what it is. But we don't like that today and we've decided that we can come along. I'm not just talking about the world out there, folks. I'm talking about the church. We've decided that we can come along and reinterpret that because it's uncomfortable for us. And so we've come along and we've decided that we can just sort of push that aside and we can redefine marriage and it can be whatever we think it is right now in our culture and have the power of God. And I'm telling you, all you've got is a shell. You've just got a hollow shell. You've got an empty profession You have nothing there really to draw upon in terms of God's power. 
or we've decided that, well, we don't like biological sex. I don't want to be XY. I want to be XX. Look, I'm not trying to be uncompassionate. I'm not trying to be unkind. I hope you understand that. I'm just saying that the church isn't at liberty to throw away everything that God tells the church she's supposed to believe and then tell everybody we've got something for you. No. No, the church is desperately in need of revival today. And not just churches out there that have a form of godliness and deny the power thereof and the illustrations that I've just given to you, but churches even like ours where to come along and look, everything seems fine. You've got the hymns, you've got the musical instruments, you've got the people up there doing the work, you've got all these things. But God comes along hungering for some kind of fruit, some kind of reality, some kind of genuineness in our lives. And what does he find? I don't know, you'll have to answer that question. This is my message this morning. Is he disappointed? He makes all of this investment in me. He makes all of this investment in you. And how have we responded to that? Don't think you're going to have the power of God if that's the case because it just doesn't work that way. Are we in need of revival today? We sure are. We sure are. In fact, I'll tell you something. Everybody in this room is in need of revival today. And that's the honest truth. We've gotten so embarrassed about the old-time religion and the absolute authority of the Bible. And it's horrible. Why are we embarrassed about the things that built the church? Why are we embarrassed about the gospel? Why are we embarrassed about witnessing to people? Why are we embarrassed about an altar call? Why, 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 I have to ask. Why are we embarrassed with the message that calls men and women and boys and girls to repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? Why understand about understanding the day in which we live and finding the most effective way to reach our generation? I understand all that. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the fact that the church has kind of grown beyond that. No, we haven't grown beyond that. We desperately need that. In our biographical sermon series, we went through all of these people. We went into the era of the evangelist. Have you noticed that we don't have D.L. Moody's today, by and large? We don't have R.A. Tories today, by and large. We don't have Billy Sundays today, by and large. We don't have Bob Jones Seniors today, by and large, because we've outgrown the need for that. A tent meeting, an old-fashioned altar, a warm appeal to people to come to the cross and trust Jesus as personal Savior. I'm telling you, the power of God resides in the gospel message. That's what we're told, correct? It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And beloved, if we are interested in the power of God, it's only going to come to us as we have genuineness in our lives and consider whether or not we are a disappointment to God. Well, this comes to conclusion with this last idea, which is judgment. You know, it's inevitable. That's the thing. You can't avoid this. If when this pro problem is brought to your attention, that it goes from a bold profession to an empty profession to a hypocritical profession, 
because we're claiming something that we're not. We're giving an advertisement of something that we really don't amount to. We're not genuine. We're not real. We're fakes. And it's not that there was no hope for Israel. There was hope for Israel because Jesus pled with them. Jesus gave the message that they could have turned. They had an opportunity on Palm Sunday. They could have turned in true repentance and faith all in the course of his ministry. But do you know something? When you turn your back on that message and decide that that's not for you, you've exhausted the possibilities of hope. Not because the possibilities of hope don't exist, but because you've turned them aside. And once you turn them aside, you only leave God with the option of judgment. This is the point that I'm making. I'm not up here hard preaching. I'm simply up here saying that God loves us. He desires to reach out to us. He desires to touch our hearts. If we don't respond to that, just ask yourself, what options have we left God? And I find that it's very interesting that if you broaden your study of this a little bit, you'll come up with these two very things. Um, it might be worth your while to mark your Bible here and turn to Luke chapter 13 for just a moment. Because I want to show you there's another place. This is different now. This is not the, the story of the cursing of the fig tree. This is different. But it's very much akin, and there's a thought connected with it that I think we can pick up and relate and see my point. So in Luke chapter 3, look at verse 6. Now you notice there's five verses before this. We're going to come back to that. Here's what it says. He spoke also this parable. This is Luke 13, 6. He spoke also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree in his, planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the vine dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Do, do you begin to see? It's not as if the man didn't give time. Three times, three years. God is compassionate. God is patient. But the man comes and he says, There's something wrong here. This thing just isn't producing. And then in the story we're told, and he answering, so the, the, the dresser answers unto him, Lord, let it alone this year till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Where'd that story come from? What's the point of that story? Well, you just look back up in verses 1 through 5. Let's read them. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you nay, but except ye likewise repent. And except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt at Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. What was he saying? He was saying, you look at these seeming extreme evidences of God's displeasure like, okay, Pilate slew these people and mingled, mingled their blood with their sacrifices. Or you look at these people, 18 of them, the Tower of Siloam fell on them, and you say to yourself, boy, these must have been really bad people, sinners. Finally caught up with them, didn't it? And God says, no, you need repentance too. 
There's no sense in you considering yourself so high and mighty that you're above repentance. You need repentance too. That message is just as true for you as it is for anyone else, is what he's saying. And so when God comes to us and he says, you know what, Coleman? I'm looking at you and I've got a lot of time and a lot of effort invested in you. What fruit do you have? If I can't say, Lord, I've done my best to respond to everything I understand of what you want and I know I'm not perfect and I know there's still things you're working on but Lord, I want you to be glorified in my life. I want to hunger for the same fruit that you hunger for in my life. Well, that's one thing. But if he comes and he says, I've invested all this time and all you've got your reputation. You've got what people know about you. I love that old saying, you know, you're, I learned it in school when I was there and it was above those blackboards. Your reputation is what men think you are. Your character is what God knows you are. Now then I need to repent if that's the case. And then the other thought that's connected with it, you just go right back there and you'll find it because after this is over with, the next day, Peter sees this thing. He says, whoa, whoa, look at this. Verse number 20. And in the morning they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. That doesn't usually happen, you know. Usually when something, if you think about this for a minute, usually when something's going to die off, it's kind of different, right? First you kind of see like a tree in your yard that's dying. What do you typically see? Well, you start, some branches start going bad. But this is the other way around. See, this is from the ground up. This is from the roots. Peter notices this. Because they'd noticed the day before when Jesus said this. So now they were really curious about this thing. And Peter calling unto him, verse 21 saith, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus decided to take the teaching moment for them in a different direction, and he said these words, have faith in God. Verily I say unto you that whatsoever I, uh, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatever, whatsoever he saith. Verse 24, therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe. What am I trying to do here? I'm trying to connect the message that's always there with the problem that's there. The problem was a bold profession, but emptiness on the inside, which makes it hypocritical. But God coming and saying, Repent and trust in me. And that's the constant message, right? That's exactly what the apostles preached. You can read about this in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21 where it says their message was repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You can read in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1 where we're told, therefore leaving the principle of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, that is to mature, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. In other words, he comes to us with the message of repentance and faith so that we might come to him and be saved. And then he says you're supposed to grow. You're supposed to go on from there because you grow and you 
produce fruit. This is what I've made my investment. Did you ever stop to think, this is not just a business, business arrangement, beloved. That illustration might help us understand it, but I'm just trying to get you to see something. You know, you're here for a reason. Did you know that? Couldn't God have saved you and just taken you home to heaven right then and there? Well, sure he could. So what in the world are we doing here? Why did God leave us here? He had a purpose. He had a plan. And you know what? If you open your heart to him, he'll show you what that plan is for your life. Did you know that? And then he'll take a rotten sinner like me and a rotten sinner like you, and he'll turn us around. And he'll pour more nutrients in us as we abide in him. Thinking about the analogy in John 15. As we abide in him and we grow and periodically he comes along, the vine dresser does, and he sees a little bit of fruit and he clips a branch or or two. That's called pruning. No one likes it. But he does it so that we might bring forth more fruit. And why does he do that? I've told you now. John 15, 8. Here is my Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. But you know they rejected this. And I share the words now for you from Luke chapter 19 in the account of Palm Sunday there so that you might see this and see how they left him nothing. They left him no options but judgment. Verse 39 of Luke chapter 19, And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. That's the one I like. And when he was come near, he beheld the city, he wept over it, saying, God's not mean. God's not hard. You don't weep over something if you don't have a heart for it, right? What have we seen? He hungers, he weeps. We continue our reading saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things that belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and that them that bought. Wow. It wasn't as if he didn't care. It wasn't as if he didn't preach. It wasn't as if he didn't give them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But you know, in the end, it catches up. Hypocrisy catches up. Profession without reality catches up. I call it bluster without muster. You know that? Words without deeds. The old little saying, you know, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Here's a little story. A man by the name of George O'Leary. You know that name, Coach? I figured. And just to call him up here and let him tell the story. That's the man that was coach of Notre Dame football team, head coach for five days. You didn't know that. Kind of interesting. What happened to him? Well, 
He took his position in December of 2001. Five days later, he resigned in disgrace. Why? Because an investigation revealed that more than 20 years before, he had included false claims on his resume. He said he lettered in football when he had not even been on the team. He said he had a master's degree that he'd never earned. None of his other preaching, uh, coaching jobs hitherto, they had discovered this, but in the high-profile environment of Notre Dame, someone did. In a statement, O'Leary said this, due to a selfish and thoughtless act many years ago, I have personally embarrassed Notre Dame, its alumni and fans. What, with that in mind, I will resign my position as head football coach. Any more than 20 years passed. Lots of opportunities to fix that resume. Lots of opportunities to take those things in it that were wrong or false and get rid of them. But you know you just keep getting in deeper and deeper and deeper. And you think it won't be found out. And in this life, perhaps, there are many things that won't. But the truth is, God knows. And God knows if all that people see is just an empty, hollow shell. He was hungry and he wept. But he found nothing but leaves. It's kind of interesting, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, it was the same thing there. Adam and Eve were made by God. They were in fellowship with God. God would come in fellowship with them. He would come to the garden apparently in the cool of the day walk with them and talk with them and there was complete harmony there and then one day he came and called to them he couldn't see them he couldn't find them to speak in human terms why not they were hiding and why were they hiding they were hiding because they had sinned and what did they do in the light of their sin? Did they come to God and cast themselves upon his mercy in true repentance and faith? That was not their first response because that's not the first response of human nature. The first response of human nature, which now has become a sin nature because they have disobeyed God, is to hide and to cover and they did exactly that because the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed themselves together and made themselves aprons of fig leaves. Nothing but leaves, fig leaves. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Garden of Eden, Palm Sunday, fig leaves, nothing but leaves. Several years ago, there were a group of salesmen who went to Chicago for a sales convention. And they knew what their schedule was. They told their wives, hey, we're going to catch this plane in the afternoon and we'll be home in time for dinner that night. So they were done with the convention. They were scurrying through the airport trying to get there on time to catch the flight. And in the process of this, one of them ran into a table, a display table. There was a, little, there was a girl there at the table, knocked it over, 
and the display table was full of apples. That's what she had. Apples went everywhere. Well, they looked back, saw the mess that the one guy had created, but were worried that they wouldn't catch their flight, and so they just kept going. Finally, they got there to the gate, ready to get on the flight, and one guy reconnected with his conscience. Told his buddies as he waved to them, I'm going back. When you get home, just tell my wife I'll take a lighter flight. He was really glad that he went back because when he went back, he found that the girl, the 16-year-old girl that had been at that table was blind. She was down on the floor groping helplessly for those apples, trying some and crying all the while. He got down on the floor, helped her gather up the apples. In the process of gathering up the apples, he noticed that a number of them were bruised from the fall. Sound familiar? You and I are bruised from the fall. And so he got his wallet out, and he got $40 out of his wallet and asked the girl, separating the apples, the bad ones now, with the bruises over into a separate place, asked her if she would take the $40 in payment for the apples that had become bruised when the man knocked over the table. He said to her, are you okay? And she kind of nodded through her tears. And then he said to her, I hope we didn't spoil your day too badly. He turned to walk away, to go back to catch the later flight. When all of a sudden, the girl, bewildered, called out, Mister! He turned around. She continued, Mister! Are you Jesus? That stopped him dead in his tracks. He didn't know what to say. And finally he turned and just went on back to the gate. The question comes when people look at us, do they see anything of Jesus? See, that's really where all of this is headed because he wants to conform us to the image of his son. Because he first made us in his image and then we have become bruised by the fall so that that image is marred. And in redemption, what he wants to do is restore that and make us fully reflective of all of his glory, what he made us in the beginning to be. And I have to ask me and I have to ask you, so when they see me, what do they see? Any reality? Any glimpse of Jesus? Or just a hollow shell?